0: Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar guest episode featuring good pal of the show. That is your two-time Indianapolis 500 winner, also race steward with the NTT IndyCar series. Mr. Dyke how are you in the midst of a move and a race coming up this weekend at Mid-Ohio?
1: Yeah, I'm very uh, versatile this weekend or this week, <laughs> the past couple of weeks flying to races, uh, moving into one house. And then of course also moving out of one house. And I have this really cool, uh, we nicknamed it the, I love me room, which is full of trophies and we have books and model cars and a couple of race cars. And we just, I have so much stuff that my wife actually started to get mad with me that I kept so much stuff, but Hey, I like stuff.
0: So I thought that I had a problem in terms of collecting memorabilia, keeping things, etc. And then you sent me a little video last week uh, of just around your collection of what is left in the house that hasn't been moved. So not including the stuff you've already moved. And I realized I'm like a day one amateur when it comes to racing memorabilia. You have everything And I know you love your son. I just want to be added to your will because there is so much cool stuff there. Uh, Yeah. I'm a jealous man. Maybe
1: maybe one of these days I'll do what AJ Ford did years ago. He had an auction at the Indianapolis Speedway and he sold a bunch of his race cars, trophies, you name it. And um, I think I bought bought something back then, but we're talking maybe 20 years ago. But um, no, I mean, I looked at. Dario showed me a video of his place, and I'm an amateur compared to Dario. <laughs> so there's always bigger and better.
0: <laughs> well, let's say uh, big thanks quickly to our, our great partners and friends at the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and Cooper Tires. So, Ari, coming out of the doubleheader at Worldwide Technology Raceway, know that uh, you rang me soon after that to express some thoughts and opinions on some things that I wrote and said, agreed with some, didn't agree with others. And that's A, normal, and B, as I told you and tell you, I always appreciate that because you never want folks to sit and stew. You want, you know, hey, I like the thing or I don't like the thing. Let's have a conversation. And you said, well, hey, why don't we do the, uh, the Week in IndyCar next week and we can talk about some of this stuff in a little bit of a deeper capacity. So let's do that and let's start off with a question sent in by our pal, I refer to him as my minister of mirth on the show, Lance Snyder. He says, Ari, Colton Herta had some really not-so-nice things to say about you on the radio after uh, Renus VK passed him at Gateway. He said, how do you react to the insinuation he made of a conflict of interest? Uh, He also asks, do you reach out to Colton directly to bring that up with him, or is there an intermediary How do you go about that when you have a driver who's calling your integrity into question and that's not something that most race stewards or race directors are really fond of?
1: No, no. Let me explain, first of all, the race director role of Kyle Novak. He's the one who would throw the yellow. He's the one who would call the red. He basically runs everything. And then Max Pappas and I, or Ray Stewart's, we sometimes get a message from the team and the team will say, Hey, you know, let's say car number five messages us and say car number 28 blocked us. And then we go, okay, where was it? Uh, and then we try and find it and then we determine, was it a block or was it not? Or was it just, it looked like a block, but it really wasn't and, and things like that. So we, uh, we try to treat everybody the same because uh, after all, we don't ever use anybody's name in race control. We just use them as a car number and we treat them independently as such, or, uh, you know, without any personal connection. So, you know, my integrity is really important to me. And if somebody says, Hey, you should have given this guy a penalty, but you didn't because you like him or, you know, him or whatever, or you're both um, Dutch or you're both Dutch. Then I have to stand up immediately and defend myself because I really, I really don't have a problem with giving whoever it is a penalty if he deserves it. And um one thing that we Max and I are big fans of almost unfair hard racing. And when I mean almost unfair, I mean we're not gonna, you know, we're not talking about a bunch of wimps driving an Indy car. They're not wimps at all and we don't want to treat them like wimps and we don't want them to race like that. So when you look at, for instance, on Saturday at, um, in St. Louis or gateway or whatever it's called, um, Sato made an amazing pass on Pardo, but they rubbed wheels. And I mean, it was pretty cool. And that's the kind of racing we like to see a few years ago at the same racetrack. Joseph Newgarden stuffed it on the inside, touched Simon, and Simon went high, just barely made it around. Joseph won the race. Simon Paginot finished second. So those are the kinds of deals that we don't promote people running into each other and bumping into each other, but it's part of racing. And that's exactly what happened uh, last weekend with with Colton and with uh, VK. And the fact that we didn't look at it, you know, Max and I, we looked at it, we looked at each other. I'm okay with it, you? Yeah, I'm okay with it. So we continued. And that's pretty much what it comes down to. There's no, you know, Indianapolis, for instance, um, when Renas came into the pit, you know, you can get a, a drive-through for touching a crew member, or you can get a stop and hold or a stop and go. We gave him a stop and go. We. We didn't give him a drive-through, but we gave him a stop and go, which is more severe penalty because he knocked a couple of his guys over in the pit. So um, I can easily have three hats, uh, one hat being a race to it, the other one being friendly with every guy out there, uh, helpful to every rookie out there like we do this year. Max and I, we actually give them a lot of pointers, uh, especially at Indianapolis. And, um, if I were, if I were a manager for Rinus VK, which I'm not, then, uh, then I could play that role too, because I can easily switch it off. Very easy to do.
0: So a couple of quick things to follow up here. You were on the week in IndyCar here. I think it was late last year, early this year, someone sent in a question saying, Hey, We know you're obviously trying to mentor Renus when you can and have been on the road to Indy. What do you do if a penalty comes up or his name comes up and race control about whether he should be penalized or not? And you answered back then I recuse myself that goes between Max Pappas and someone else because I'm an idiot when I was doing my show last week, my listener Q and a show, when someone asked, I totally forgot about that, but you answered that a long Mm. time ago already. But why don't we address that just again here for the sake of, you know, for those who might not have heard that originally, because one of uh, Lance's last questions here, who at, who says, do you automatically recuse yourself uh, when it comes to VK should also mention that, you know, there is a perception among some that there is some sort of beyond special relationship between the two of you that could taint how you do your job. And I know that you bristle, yeah. bristle at that notion.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's not even, that doesn't even come into play. Of course, people will have their uh, assumptions and, and think that's just the case, but just let's throw in an example. Let's say Ari junior was driving in the Indy 500 and in an Indy car. That means I cannot be a steward. Of course it, I can still be a steward. So, if Ari Jr. blocks somebody, he's going to get a drive through in Indianapolis, for instance. So, so with VK. Um, back to recusing myself. So, last weekend, for instance, in St. Louis, both Max and I looked at the uh, the, the issue with, with Colton and with um, VK in turn three. Um, we didn't think of any, anything of it, uh, but neither did neither did Jay Fry. And Jay Fry is basically the third steward when we need him. And that's what happens in these cases. We pull in Jay Fry and those guys basically go, nah, not a problem. And then it's not a problem. So that answers that question. But I don't 100% recuse myself because I still go through the motion as if it were somebody else.
0: Gotcha. Let's go to... Our pal Vincent, 1701, who asks, "Are is there a racing call that you feel you've nailed and you're proud of, and is there one you look back at and maybe wish you could do over?
1: Yeah, the one that I want to do over is the one with uh, Sebastian Bourdais in Long Beach where he made an amazing pass going into turn one. I'm sure I don't have to explain to you which pass that was. Yeah. And, uh, he went completely over the line on the right-hand side, which divides the pit exit lane from the racetrack. And you're not, you're not supposed to go there, but putting more time into looking at the video and we've learned from this to not, we we've learned from this to give ourselves more time. We always felt, and when you have a penalty that includes give up a position, you have to do it quick because if you wait two laps and then you go, Oh, by the way, you have to give up the position. But now in the meantime, you might've the driver who will have to give up the position, he might've gapped the other guy by five seconds. And now he's got to slow down by five seconds. So when it comes to that type of penalty, we want to do it quick and fast. And we, we did it a little bit too fast with Bourdais back then. We made him give up the position immediately. And he took back the position immediately, which was really cool that he did that. I think he did it within the same, like lap. And don't and, mind um, the uh,
0: fire truck leaving. We're in the Bay Area here, and the skies are orange. And yeah, so yeah, apologies no, for the, uh, the, the the fire truck in the background.
1: No, it adds a little bit of atmosphere, which not a good atmosphere because it's really terrible what's going on there. But um, so, yeah, you see, when it comes to that type of penalty, you have to go really quick, really quick. And then you, you lose something. And what we lost, both Max and I, what we lost was Dixon had come over a little bit to the right, which forced, because Bourdais, he could not have known that Dixon would come over just a little bit, because for all he knew, he could have come over more. So he just took a bit of evasive action. And uh, if we could have done that over again, we wouldn't have given him the penalty. And as far as making the right call, I I really I really don't know. I mean, um, I I only remember really the calls that we we handed out a penalty that I was later uh, that I regretted later.
0: But that's that's so human nature though, Ari. Every now and then, rare occasion, but every now and then I'll get a listener or reader who will ask, hey, is there a story you're most proud of or a whatever that you've achieved, something really positive that you look at with great reverie. Those things yeah. never come to mind. Like It's never the good stuff where you're just sitting there going, yeah, I'm so awesome. It's always the damn, I wish I could do that over again. Those suckers stick like glue. The rest, well, but, uh, they fade to memory you know, quite
1: often. I as, as you're, you're talking, I'm thinking here like, well, let's, let's, let's look at last week with Santo and had award. If we, that was a great non-call because if we would have called that, we would destroy it for ourselves as well. Now, every real contact. about the wheel contact rossi had two years ago in elkhart lake in turn uh, six Uh, i think it was sato as well um i can mention so many more like going into turn two in detroit uh, montoya with power they were banging wheels and ended up high and then somebody slipped through to win the race that was super super cool action and if you start penalizing things like that, you're going to destroy the sport. Our goal is to, to give out as less penalties as possible.
0: Well, amen to that. Let's go, uh, let's go to Tim glass. He says, Ari, the Dutch are known for their bluntness. He says, I know I'm married to one. He asks, does that help (laughs) either as a race car driver or as a steward?
1: No, it it helps as a race car driver, not so as a steward, because as a steward, we still are dealing with personalities. And I will be the last person to criticize any IndyCar driver who's had any success or a lot of success. It's not up to me to tell Will Power, Ryan Hunter, Ray, Sato, anybody how to drive a race car. It's up to me to make them aware in a, in a You know, sometimes they'll, and I think this is one of the questions I saw coming by on Twitter this morning. Our drivers have an hour when the checkered flag drops at two o'clock, they have until three o'clock to come to our trailer and then discuss whatever they want with us. Anything. It doesn't even have to be related to the race. But they have an hour there just to talk to us about agreeing with a penalty or agreeing with a non penalty or whatever. And, uh, and then when they do come in, they're usually not agreeing and they are usually pissed off and then, you know, tempers could fly high. So we let them rage, we let them vent and we just sit back and listen and, and try to be cordial because it's not about me getting into an argument. It's about me explaining, uh, Max and I explaining why did we do this? And also when it comes to race procedures, they will talk to Kyle Novak about why did you close the pits or why did you not close the pits? or Why did you do this? So they can come in and talk about that, but there's never an argument There's always a civilized conversation from our end. So I'm blunt. Yes. And I'll also tell them what I think, but not in a blunt, stupid, impolite way, impolite. I love
0: it. I absolutely love it. Let's go to, let's go to our pal, Tim Falkowitz says, Ari, after all you've done and accomplished as a driver in racing, what makes you want to stay involved on the officiating side with the thankless, but very necessary job of being a race steward? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you could probably do things where you get less frustration and aggravation thrown at you. Very rarely do you get drivers come to you saying, "Thank you," that I, I that penalty that was the that just made my day. So it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about race stewarding that makes sense to you at a time where maybe you could just be enjoying the finer things in life?
1: Well, to me, Indy car racing is the finer things in life. I- Like now I'm super excited to go to mid Ohio. I'm so happy that they're racing just because the series needs it at this time. We need more races and good ones. And mid Ohio is a great race. I love being around the IndyCar family period. I love the whole thing about it. Um, uh, I don't like the criticism. Nobody does that. I don't like the the, the internet trolling. Um, You know, and I don't react to it because it's not my place to react to it. But, um, I'm losing my train of thought.
0: Ah, I mean, my,
1: my wife. My wife just walked in. Well, that's a good
0: reason. Anyways, to lose your train of thought. So, but um, so sticking around and stewarding, though, is this something you will do for as long as they ask you back, or is there a point where you might think, okay, you know, I'll do it for a couple more years, but then I'm done?
1: Yeah, I, know, I didn't put a timetable on it. I really like doing it, and what I really like about the whole process is that not every weekend so often we we pick up on something and go like every weekend something happens that you go like wow that was unexpected and it's really cool because uh, i'll give you an example scott dixon when he he's fun in qualifying and if you bring out the yellow you cause a driver behind you to slow down and you know but don't put down a lap time that he should then obviously scott dixon is getting a penalty but Scott Dixon spun and the guy behind him had also just left the pits. So he wasn't on the lap yet, but you have to figure out you can look up. There's a guy behind him, a guy uh, he's been, in, you know, he's been impeded. So we give him a penalty, Scott uh, Dixon, but we didn't have to because that guy also was on his out lap. So things like that, just, they jump at you and it's a new experience. And that's, that's part of what makes it all exciting too the constant changing and learning and, and evolving.
0: Our friend Jaren Demendal tells me on a semi-regular basis about how Renus is growing in popularity at home in the Netherlands for his exploits in America in IndyCar. I know, obviously, you spend the majority of your time here in the States, Ari, but as someone who writes for Dutch Racing Magazine and has heavy influence in in Dutch motorsports, what have you been able to see or hear from friends and contacts back home about how this, this young rookie is creating more awareness in IndyCar, uh, frankly, since you and Robert Dornboss were really the last ones to give folks in the Netherlands a reason to tune in. What are you hearing about Renus' impact just at home so far?
1: Yeah, a lot of positive things, of course. And, uh, you know, um what what they have done the family they have they hired someone to do their social media with them and also a a pr person and they've really worked on that really hard as he was going through the the ranks so now with indycar him being in an indycar um and those races being televised in the netherlands uh, the popularity is his popularity but also the interest in indycar has gone so much in the last half year or so which is really good to see and I think you see something similar in Sweden with Marcus Ericsson and with uh, Felix Rosenquist and it's really good to get that international attention again for the series I think it's important to have that although we're a national series uh, it's very appealing for people who watch Formula 1 because in, in the Netherlands Every Formula One race is watched by, I don't know how many millions of people because of Max Verstappen, but the fact now that we have a a new kid in IndyCar and those same racing fans for uh, Max have kind of latched on to Venus now. And that's really cool to see. And that's why the sport is just going to now get more popular uh, and popular again because of his participation. And um, it's just cool to see.
0: I know speaking with Ed Carpenter this morning for a pending silly season, first silly season story, uh, I usually do this every year leading into mid-Ohio, asked him about his goals for next year. And he said his goal is to continue unchanged with Connor in place, hopefully elevated to a full-time opportunity. And Renus continuing as well. He said driver continuity is really what he wants to maintain for next year. Uh, He'll mm-hmm. also continue racing as well, which is great to hear because he's Ed's had a terrible season, which you know has nothing to do with talent or ability. But great to hear that although we're you know we're just past the halfway mark here, or a little bit past the halfway mark in his rookie season, Renus has made enough of an impact on the team to where they are actively working to make sure they hold on to them and keep going. So I was really happy to hear that. Let's go to mm-hmm. a, a question sent in by a, uh, I guess we could say a, a star question submitter. Uh, a certain J.R. Hildebrand submitted this one. And you've been asked these things a lot, but we can't do an episode without it being asked. This comes in from IndyCar driver J.R. Hildebrand, who says, Ari, let's talk about setting the four lap qualifying record at the Indy 500. He's curious driver to driver. Did you know that that speed was in the car that day? And he's curious to hear about what were the indicators? Was it practice speed, engine tune, arrow setup? curious to hear driver to driver. What gave you the, uh, the idea or inclination that we're going to go do something special?
1: Yeah, I think you and I did a story on this already. And, um, uh... No, I knew, you know, I think we rolled off the trailer as we say that in racing lingo, super fast. And I think it was the first day it was 234, 235. And the the basic setup of the car was phenomenal. And we just tweaked from there on. And, uh, I had peaked already on, I believe Thursday or Friday before qualifying where I did a, a few 238s on my own. So I knew it was in the car, everything was you know, everything was just set up perfectly. And I think that the, one of the biggest regrets I have is taking the car out on Saturday morning at that eight, in that eight o'clock session, because, you know, those are the most ideal circumstances, the temperature wise and, and, and everything. And I think it was, it's, I look back and that's a regret to, to take the car, the car out on the track, uh, that, that morning, because that's when, uh, Somebody hit the wall, the parts flew into the, my side part. I had to go through the grass to uh, avoid uh, the crash. And, um, that's when the engine overheated and we had to, the team had to put a different engine in the car, which would have been okay. But in their haste, um, the, uh, the water wasn't really bled properly. And then that engine overheated. So then hastily they got together the backup car, which was not really ready ready so i went out to qualify that was about three something miles an hour slow with that car and then um, it turned out that car was underweight so so then we got disqualified from qualifying second and then we brought out the primary car and now of course they took their time to change the engine and do everything properly and i set all the records and it was it was For me it was just i was so used to running those speeds already during that week that uh, yes i did anticipate it um all the homework had been done during the week to to do those uh, speeds and uh, it was like i've said before the best car i've ever driven in indianapolis and that leads me into qualifying where i was playing around with the lines and i was really getting that boost knob really to go right there where the maximum boost was coming out of the engine. And it's a stupid knob back then, you know, click, click, click. And <laughs> if you would, if you would hear a little bit of hissing, you had to go back and to get that right, sometimes takes a lap or a lap and a half. And, and every lap was just a little bit quicker because I just starting perfecting the lines and playing around with the lines. And, uh, that car was phenomenal.
0: And Jr. actually asked a follow up to that. He was just curious about the feel. He says, "Could you share some thoughts about the balance and whether you felt you were ahead of the car?" Also, is curious if you felt at any point you were at the absolute limit of its handling capabilities.
1: No, no, I was. I never had a, what we call a moment where the car gets a little nervous. Never had that with that car. And every time I would enter, let's say turn one. The feedback was right there through the wheel that everything was just fine. The car was, the car didn't have any push, no understeer. It never had any looseness, never was oversteer. The car was on the edge of being just neutral, but never tricky. And, um, that's why it's the best car I ever drove there because the only option for me to go quicker, um, Because NJR JR knows, of course, you know, you have a certain steering input. And the less steering input you have, the less revs you scrub off in the turns. And my steering input was minimal. I mean, I, I always would talk to guys, if I coach them, like, what you want to try and do going around the speedway, you don't want to really turn the steering wheel. You want the car almost to turn itself. So you want very little steering input. And that was the case with that car. So for us to go quicker, the only option would have been this to take the rear wing off and balance the car. And I wasn't about to do that. <laughs> My engineer said, Tim Wardrop, you yeah, know, well, he says, we can take the wing off. I go like, <laughs> hell no, you're not driving the car. <laughs> so that would have been the only option, but, uh, I didn't go there. I didn't want to be that uh, brave guy driving around the speedway without a rear wing. When uh, I was already doing two thirty eights, so
0: how crazy! Well, why don't we do this? Let's rattle through a, a final few questions here, my friend. Uh, got a question coming back, General Renus area. This is from Dean Ackerman. Asked Ari, how cool was it to see Renus's tribute helmet uh, that paid tribute to your first Indy five hundred victory? Did you know about that in advance, or did he surprise you with it? Uh, tell us about that.
1: No, they were hinting at something, uh, but I never really knew about what that was. And then, uh, no, so it was a surprise to me, although they were hinting a little bit. um, They were just saying that he was going to get a really cool helmet for Indy, but uh, that's all I knew. He, uh, yeah, no, it was, I was really uh, taken back by that. It was very special, I say, you know, because... When he sat in the pits, and you were on this side of the pit wall, you look at the helmet, and it's just my helmet. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Let's
0: go to our man Jordan Darwin, who has two great questions. He says, Ari, can you share any good stories of driving against Rick Mears in his prime?
1: Well, I have to say one thing about Rick, that he's always the fairest guy to race against. You know, he would never play any games, he would never you know, he was just super, um, how, how would the word for that be? Um, and just fair, you know, fair, hard, but not, you know, um, and he was just amazing on the ovals. I mean, especially tracks like Milwaukee and Phoenix, he would just be so good. You know, he was, uh, he was the guy you would look at and go like, you know, I'd try to emulate that. Uh, and at the Speedway uh, as well. Um, I remember one race in Michigan, 91. He and I were battling for the lead. And um, I got a, I got a drive-through penalty, which uh, I never agreed on. <laughs> 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 I always say, I sometimes say to people, they go like, what do you do now uh, in IndyCar? I go like, I'm, I'm, now I'm the guy I used to hate. The race, do it. But anyway, um yeah, that that last shootout, the last ten laps. You know, I, I think I was a second and a half behind him, and I couldn't pick up any draft. And I'm like, man, he's pulling away. He's just pulling away. And I'm like, just getting really angry with myself that I couldn't get closer. But uh, no, Rick is such a gentleman, and uh, I haven't seen him for a while. I, I know he's at the races, but with this the COVID going on, we can't just mingle with everybody. So, but uh, great person as well.
0: I know Rick told me last year he wanted to start limiting some of his travel. He just, and this is obviously pre-COVID, but said, you know, I've been on the road seemingly every weekend of my life since 1970 something. he said, you know, uh, I think I'm just going to start picking my spots as to which ones I come out for to work with Team Penske. So, yeah, a mm-hmm. Rick Mears appearance is uh, is now a little bit more of a special thing. Jordan has a, another question here, which I love. I've never asked you about this. I don't know why. He says, what can you tell us about that Menard Buick V6 turbo-powered car you drove at the Speedway in 1995? I mean, I know you qualified middle of the front row, I believe, but we're talking horsepower, among many crazy things you've driven, where does this thing rank in terms of holy crap? And also, how about from a handling standpoint? That sure was a big lump behind you.
1: The the Lola Manard, and, and also um, for that year, uh, Tim Warder was my engineer, and Tim again dialed in that car so nice. Practically, the handling of that car was just phenomenal. The only thing it wasn't really good in, in the race was in traffic behind other people. It it picked up a huge understeer and there was a lag in the engine which didn't help you. When you had to get out of the throttle and then back on the throttle it was a lag and then you just that understeer, that push continued. So we had a problem that year in the race with the boost, you know, the boost was fifty five inches for the Buicks and it was 45 inches for the other engines. uh, Because it was a normally, uh, because it was a uh, stock block, they were allowed 10 inches more. And that's when Penske, you know, before that came out with that Mercedes um, stock block engine with the 55 inches of boost. But uh, for some reason in in our race, um, we didn't have 55 inches of boost. We only had 50 inches. And the thing was basically during race trim, um, it was a dog, which is too bad because it just wouldn't come off the corner really good. Um, as far as being like, whoa, whoa, all this horsepower, that was never the case with that thing because it built it up gradually. It wasn't all there right right away. Uh, leaving the pits was really difficult because it just had nothing there. Um, and you didn't want to have the, all the boost come in as you're on the throttle in the pit lane, trying to leave the pit lane because then you would definitely go around so leaving the pitch was difficult um i have to say it wasn't one of my better experiences driving that car
0: kind of an all-or-nothing motor which when you got all it was really impressive like how is this It, it was the ultimate qualifier uh not sure it was the ultimate racer at
1: least it was yeah it was you know you had to wind it up and then once you were wound up i mean it was it was pretty stout. that's for sure and the handling was great so it was not a, it was a, a difficult car to drive, uh, in and out of the pits, and, um, and on the racetrack, obviously with that boost problem we had, we, we couldn't really figure in into that race, but it's too bad it happened because we would have been, we could have been running for the lead uh, at the end there. If it had all the boost for sure, because the handling definitely was there.
0: Three questions to go, Ari. This comes in from our pal, Jerry Siddoth, on a topic you and I, we love. It says, you race Super V, both in Europe and the United States. He's curious about the biggest difference in terms of quality of the fields between the two different uh, forms of Super V racing you did.
1: you um, yeah, I never thought about that. Um, both were competitive, um, there weren't really 10 guys there uh, that could win the race, but there were always about five of them, six of them who who could win a race. So as far as competitiveness and uh, and also the, the large fields that we used to have uh, both here and in Europe, they're pretty comparable, uh, absolutely. And of course, we didn't have ovals over there. So uh, the first ovals I ever did were obviously in the United States.
0: And that actually leads perfectly into our penultimate question from my pal, John Woznar who says, "Aria, I noticed that you were a oval maestro. This is being from Europe where you didn't have ovals. What kind of training did you do over here? Uh, did you have any experience on any kind of oval uh, before you came over here? And what was the process like learning ovals once you got to the U.S. heavily?
1: Well, the first oval I ever raced on was in Phoenix, which was at the end of 1980, in a Super fee. and then I did a couple more ovals uh, again for the following season, the '81 season. But I have to say, in the beginning, on the ovals, I was pretty—I wasn't that comfortable at all. I was no, I wasn't com- comfortable at all. It took a while for me to understand what it took. Uh, I did realize really quickly that being brave and having big kahunas was not what you needed to go fast on an oval. You had to be smart, you had to think it through, and you really had to listen to the car. And um, so those lessons I already then just taught myself and learned uh, as I went along in the Super V series. And then when I came to IndyCars, I really uh, had a lot of a lot of respect for the ovals because I saw some of the accidents, for instance, Derek Daly in 1984 in Michigan, something you don't want to do. Um, and that's why I had to really, I was really always quite careful in the beginning until I felt totally comfortable with the car. And, um, but I have to say when it all kind of clicked and really came together was when I drove with Dick Simon. Who was really good at setting up cars on the Olvos. and then I, then I, I learned quite a bit more in 1988 with Dick, and uh, that was really that 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 extra knowledge that I gained through working with Dick Simon, that was what really set me on my way to win Indianapolis in 1990 because we also ran together, uh, Dick Simon and I in 1989
0: he was such a Dick was such a pivotal guy in so many drivers careers. I mean, you've always just showered him with praise and appreciation. Whenever we discuss him, mm-hmm. uh, Lynn St. James does the same or old boy Zell. I mean, there's just, and I'm only mentioning a couple, but there's so many yeah. who look back at Dick as a team owner and don't just say, yeah, it was fun. It was good. Whatever. There is also that layer of, He's a former racer. Heck, during some of the period he was a teammate, uh, but he was a guy who really looked at his drivers, especially those with talent, as folks where he could download so much of what he'd learned over the decades. And your story is so similar to others who say, I wasn't just driving for the guy, I was going to school, and you yeah. know, ovals uh, specifically, in." It's a pretty magical thing. You know, I don't know how many young drivers are fortunate to say that their team owner and possibly teammate is also someone who's acting in a professorial way. And that had to be a pretty cool dynamic for you.
1: That's a good word, a professorial way. I mean, that explains it all right there.
0: I, I paid a dollar to learn that word today, so I wanted that was to use it.
1: Perfect. I would never come up with that, but <laughs> see, I learned something today. <laughs> let's uh
0: let's go to the last question and I'll tell you I love it because it's out of left field but I mentioned I don't know a couple years ago sometime among the various podcasts you and I capture I want to do a Ari Lyondyke's career in sports cars so we're not going to do that full podcast right now but I figure with Lamar coming up this is a perfect question Tom Anderson says to close the show Ari mm-hmm. what seems more crazy to you now with a benefit of hindsight, lapping the Indianapolis Motor Speedway 230-plus miles per hour in an open cockpit, open-wheel car, or doing fractionally lower speeds on the Molson Strait prior to the chicanes in an enclosed Group C Nissan prototype in 1989. Tell us about that 89 adventure at Le Mans before the chicanes slowing things down on the Molson, you and I'm what was it, Jeff Brabham and Chip Robinson? Tell me about that experience, brother. That had to be nuts.
1: I've always, after that experience at Lamont, where uh, the mall sounds straight how long is that? Three miles or so? I don't even know. Yeah, just insane. But it's, it's pretty long. I used, I used that straight away to stretch my, I would put my fingers on the dashboard and push, stretch my lower arms. Uh, because you're just humming along at 248 miles an hour in that Nissan, which was insane. But, you know, you just, it's a straight line. Uh, There's a slight bend in that straight line. But there's not much to do than to pay attention to what's coming up towards you, which is slower traffic maybe. And um, looking in your mirrors, although in that, Nissan, I don't think anybody was capable of passing us on the straightaway uh, at those speeds at 248, because that's what it did. Um, I always said after that experience that Le Mans is probably more dangerous than Indy, just because of the fact that on a straightaway like that, every time we completed the lap after the Mulsanne straight, it was a bit of a relief that you didn't get a puncture or a blown tire because, you know, the consequences of that are flying around into the trees, probably. So that will, that, that's something that always was in the back of my mind and made me super nervous. Um, and then, of course, the weather and the different classes and the closing rate on the straightaway and on the Malson Strait, I mean, you would pass slower cars from a different class at a rate of speed difference, which was mind-boggling. he would blow by them like they weren't even standing, like they were standing still. And so, yeah, from that perspective, I think Le Mans has a lot more dangerous elements to it than Indy does.
0: This is also a rich era, this 89 race as well. You've got this fairly impressive Nissan factory team. Cars weren't, I mean, the cars made a million zillion horsepower, but weren't necessarily at the cutting edge of competitiveness in race trim, you've got Porsche 962s there from Yoast. You've got Tom Walkinshaw and the Silka Jaguars. You've got mm-hmm. factory Mercedes with Sauber. Uh, Mazda's there, you know, uh, two years after they would win the race overall. Uh, heck, I think even Aston Martin was there. Um, this was a, a, a rich era as well lot of diversity in cars in the the top c1 class are. but to your point this is a dragster event for about 40 percent of the lap and then a lot of mixed handling in and around the slower c2 cars some of the gtp cars and this is not a high downforce era as well i'm guessing that beyond the fears of a tire blowout or some sort of miscommunication with another car on the Mulsanne, there was a lot of grip in that steering wheel tightly, uh, for the rest of each lap, uh, during this period. What was that like as well?
1: Well, it's very intense. I mean, you know, and, and then of course you, I was really happy by the way that in that particular race, it didn't rain because, uh, you know, you throw that in the mix and now you really got to, Uh, an extra, you know, element to it, which makes it dangerous because John Lomas one time told me a story about him driving down the straight. And he says, I flashed by something. I never really saw it. Uh, and it turned out to be uh, a guy with a, with a flat tire who was just limping on the side and his lights were out. And John said, I mean, if I would have been on that side of the track, I would have been toast, you know? So you have those elements that are just crazy. Um, and of course, everything has changed now, safety wise. So Lamar is obviously a lot safer than 30 years ago, um, just like Indianapolis, just like any form of racing. But um, yeah, you think back of those things and you look back and you go, man, hmm, I'm glad I survived all that. Oh, but uh, yeah, it's but I always used to love the sports cars. I love the IMSA GTP cars. Uh, I love the long distance racing. I love driving at night. I really enjoyed Daytona, you know, having a really long stint three to almost four hours sometimes, uh, at Daytona with the, the air was cooler and everything worked better. And yeah, I, I always thought it was pretty special, you know, the sun, Either going down or the sun coming up, and you're driving. It's just, it just gives you that extra dimension that you don't have at uh, at any other race.
0: Well, we're going to find some time here, hopefully soon, to record a good look into your sports car career. I don't know why, Ari, but it is not something that nearly enough people remember. And having been fortunate to witness a lot of your sports car exploits in person whether it was with uh, the factory electromotive uh, team, Jaguar, TWR USA, you were one of the handful of pilots of the XJR14, and there's so many cool entries on your sports car CV, plus some crazy success there as well. Definitely warrants a, uh, an independent look here soon. Thanks, as always, my man, for making some time. Really did love the uh, deeper dive into the life of a race steward and how you go about things there. Cause it's something where people see the effects of the decisions, but don't often get insights as to how things go down and how you all figure things out there. So greatly appreciate your time. Also. One,
1: one thing about that I want to add to that is quite interesting that sometimes you'll have a driver come over and say, Oh, I didn't realize that this was the way it's supposed to go, as far as ruling. So, let alone the fan at home watching the races. If you if you don't know the whole backstory about a, the rule book and all that, then sometimes it's hard to comment because um, you just don't know what the rule is. And uh, we have the same thing when we watch Formula One. They have different rules there and we go like, oh, why is that? Oh, well, that's because they have a different rule. So, yeah, there's a lot to know, and not everybody could know it. So, but anyway.
0: Now we know more. Well, thanks to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Thanks to you, the listeners, and Ari, thanks for making some time here. We'll look forward to all that happens this weekend at the Honda Indy 200 doubleheader.